drivers of Ireland. It's now or never. When you want the great value cover that only comes with super value car insurance, giving you a 10% online discount and shopping vouchers with your policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 0101101 and our super value team will save the day. So give us a spin. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC, trading as Super Value Insurance, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, Fiona Lambert was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017. Two years later, the cancer returned and whilst it's not curable, it is treatable. Today, she talks to me about not bowing down to illness and taking part in the Great Pink Run this year. And I have a Fitbit Versa up for grabs with thanks to the Great Pink Run. And Professor Francis Vanuken on the latest research into obesity and diabetes and his thoughts on how we need to greet this and meet it with more empathy and compassion and what needs to change at policy level. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was good, thank you. There was a fair bit of backlash to the day in my wheels campaign that I took part in for Spinal Injuries Ireland. I did get a lot of of positive commentary and, and people making contact with me about their eyes being opened by the campaign, but... There was also a lot of commentary online that it was offensive, ableist and akin to blacking up, some suggested. I would always listen to any feedback like that and I take these opinions as part of the learning through the whole process. And not to negate those feelings expressed, but just a reminder that the sole purpose of taking part was to raise awareness and funding. But I also wanted to open my own eyes to the challenges faced when in a wheelchair, which I felt I did. I was well aware of the confines of the exercise, but akin to a charity sleep out, it's not the same as being homeless, but it does give you an idea. But if anyone with a diverse ability or in a wheelchair was offended, my sincere apologies. The campaign was organised with several members of Spinal Injuries Ireland, many of whom are in a wheelchair and were present at the launch. And the final tally raised was €111,994. But also lots of lessons were learned and all opinions were taken on board. But for me personally, it did make me far more aware of the issues that I never had thought of before. And I have had people in front of me talking about the challenges. Indeed, in my report, I I spoke to people highlighting that too. And I think the point with Spinal Injuries Ireland is that an accident can happen to anyone at any time. So one minute you can have these abilities and the next minute they they can be taken away. I don't regret taking part in the experience or many of the people that I met along the way. And likewise, I have watched a growing backlash around the call for contestants for Operation Transformation, with many feeling the format is outdated, that dieting doesn't work and that at times it can be humiliating for the contestants, particularly at weigh-in, and doesn't take into consideration the nuances around weight gain. I think the intention to get the nation healthy is a good one, but I think we need a far more holistic and person-centred approach I was surprised to read that some of the health budget goes towards 
funding the TV show and it is a TV ratings juggernaut. But I think the messaging in it needs to change or at least evolve a little bit. A number on a scales is not the only indicator of health. And while it might not be as straightforward to make a TV show that included all the differences that make up each person and the different treatment that each person might need, I do think an attempt to build a healthy relationship with food and exercise nourishing as opposed to punishing is the kind of programme that I would want to be a part of and is certainly the one I would want my children to be watching over my shoulder. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. But now, the Great Pink Run with Glanbia, supported by Joe Duffy Group, is a fun family and inclusive event. Everyone aged from 1 to 100 is welcome to participate. Irish people from all around the globe can participate to help turn the globe pink in aid of Breast Cancer Ireland. All proceeds from the event will help to fund life-saving research and the provision of good breast health education and awareness programmes nationwide by Breast Cancer Ireland. Registrations for the event are now open at greatpinkrun.ie and you can track your activity during the weekend of the event, which is the 16th and 17th of October, on your smartphone and you just upload your kilometres. You can also share your photos across social media using the hashtag greatpinkrun. So, to celebrate all of that, we have up for grabs a Fitbit Versa 3. So, to win that, all you have to do, you just have to answer this question. Who is the US singer responsible for the following songs? What About Us, Just Like a Pill and Get the Party Started. Text the word RUN, your answer and name to us now on 53106. That is 53106 and text will cost you 30 cent. Good luck. And staying on the topic of the Great Pink Run, my next guest, Fiona Lambert, was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017. Two years later, Fiona's cancer returned and while it's not curable, it is treatable. Today, she talks to me about not bowing down to illness and taking part in the Great Pink Run this year. Fiona, you're welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Claire. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks, Emil. Thank you for for coming on and and talking about this. I hear you're... uh, a feisty woman who who likes a challenge and I'm not talking about the great pink run uh, as I said in the intro <laughs> you refuse to bow down to illness and uh, I love a bit of that so take us back to 26 or 17 and your your first diagnosis what was going on in, in life around then um, so it was just after Christmas um, so life would have been quite busy with the kids going back to school and that um, uh, I had to bring my daughter Mia to the GP Um I had previously found a lump a couple of months beforehand, um, but never really thought anything of it. Um, so while I brought her, while I was bringing her to the GP, um, I just literally just said to him on the way out, I was actually walking out the door just saying, oh, by the way, I have this lump. Can you check it for me? Um, so he examined me and um, sent me in for, referred me for a mammogram. Um, so I got my mammogram quite quick, probably, well, it is because of him, because he actually put urgent on it, but I, I wasn't aware of that at the time. Um, so I had a mammogram um, the end of January, and while I was there, they did the tri- triple assessment. So that was the mammogram, the ultrasound, and a biopsy. And was cancer coming to your mind then, breast cancer at, at all? Not at all. Um, I didn't even think of it. Like, not at all. I don't know if it's ignorance or naivety. Not at all. And even 
when they asked me to go for the triple assessment on the day, I wasn't alarmed then. Like, I've been talking to women since then that they said they were, you know, but, like, I like I wasn't alarmed until they said to me, come, you know, well, it was actually the night before they said to me, sorry, the night before I was due to come back for my results from all those tests. I kind of got a little bit, God, I hope everything's all right here. And did, the, then, did they no. tell you to bring somebody with you to get that news? No, I don't really recall that. Um, but my husband was coming with me anyway. Um, like maybe they did, but like, yeah. He had Sorry, your I he just... had your back either way. So yes. Exactly, but did it come yeah. as a shock? Because I suppose if you're nervous about the, the the lump, and then you go to the doctor, and then you go for the the assessment, all the while you're worried that when you get the 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 diagnosis, you've kind of been processing it a little bit up until then. So for you, it was a bit different. It must have come as a bit of a a complete shock to you sitting there oh absolutely I'll never forget it um, like even when he was explaining it I was still sitting there going no and he was talking about calcium and I was still kind of going well calcium, calcium is good but I had too much of it um, so uh, I was in complete like completely floored like yeah I'll never forget the shock of that completely floored so what did they tell you about the prognosis and, and the treatment plan um, at that point, um, the consultant was really positive. He said he would have to do surgery for a mastectomy and then that I would have have chemotherapy for six months and radiation after it. But he was so positive um, and it was it was very much, look, it's, it's, it's a journey you're going to go on. It's going to be tough, but it's a year out of your life and you'll bounce back. And you did, which was amazing. How did you find getting the treatment and coming out the other side? Um, he was completely right in what he said. Um, it was like ridiculously hard, um, like losing your hair, all that kind of stuff. The way you feel, it's just it's like nearly ignorance is bliss because you can't you can't describe it to somebody. You can't. Um, it's just it was really hard, but it was very much doable. And you know, I had like good days in between treatments and um and to be honest with you the time flew um in hindsight it flew and I had so much support which was amazing and you know the staff in Bowens were brilliant as well so um but yeah it, it's it's really tough. And what works or what worked for you at that time I mean what's the right thing for somebody to say to you or do for you when you're going through that? Um I don't really know what the right thing to say is because even like I would find it difficult when someone, you know, is diagnosed ill. But it's more like your attitude and the, you know, I definitely positivity um, and just knowing that there's people around you, you know, that they have your back. Um, you know, my family and friends were just amazing. Um, but it, it is definitely your frame of mind. Um, and that's something that, you know, I really had to work on. And you were given the, the, the all clear and you moved on, but obviously you have to keep going um, to be checked and, and, and reassessed and the cancer came back. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I had had a bit of neck pain um, from the beginning of 2019 um, and I thought I had I was doing a move on programme um, with the medical medically um, supervised 
program for you know kind of getting getting back on your feet you know in exercise wise um after treatment and stuff so i kind of was putting it down to having pulled something you know while i was doing that exercise program or um like that just working out um so i went for physio went to a physical therapist i went to a chiropractor went everywhere um but um unfortunately then in the july of um 2019 I just kind of felt that something wasn't right because the pain wasn't going away so I went for an MRI myself um, and it was I was told I went I was told to go, to go back to my team in Beaumont that something had shown up on the MRI so and what's it like second time round Fiona is it almost easier to take because you've been through it before or does it strike more fear that you didn't beat it in inverted commas first time around um definitely more fear because like when i said ignorance is bliss i knew what was ahead of me mm. Um i i probably wasn't as shocked as i was the first time around but the fear it just grips you and it, it was unbelievable Um it was a horrible and god in 2017 it was horrible but i didn't realize how horrible how much worse that feeling was going to get until 2019. And so then did you go through all of that treatment and everything as we all got hit with the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything? Yeah, I started back on treatment um, in 2019 and um, I knew like it's permanent treatment I'm on. It's, so it's not curable but treatable. Um, so I was get, I get, I've been getting treatment ever since then. Okay, so it wasn't the same. You didn't have to lose your hair or go through all that side of things. Um, my hair thinned a little bit at the start because um, I've been on different types of chemotherapy, so it definitely thinned a bit at the start. I, I was wearing hats again and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it was a, it's, a different, it's a different type of treatment. It's more like a maintenance treatment. And that must be something to really cling to when you're told it's not curable, but it's treatable. That must be incredible to be able to hear. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I hang on to. Um, And now I'd be very much (laughs) when he said it's not curable, it's treatable. I'd be like, how treatable? And he would, he, you know, my consultant would be just like, it's treatable. And I'd be like, very treatable. Or, you know, I wanted, I, I'm trying, I'm constantly trying to cling on to something and look for the, the positive on it. Um, so, yeah, no, that was absolutely, um, you know, that's just, it's one of the best things to hear. Like, obviously you're not, it's not nice what you're hearing. But once I heard that word, word treatable, I was like, okay, I can, I can go with that. And so what sort of effect does it have on your day-to-day life now? Do you experience any other side effects or is it back to normal as such? Oh, no, absolutely. I'd have, like, side effects and it's really, really hard. Like, I get treatment at the moment. I'm on a three-week plan, so I get it on a Monday. Um, And to some extent, I'd be floored till the following Monday. Um, I could have good days and bad days in between that. But, like, definitely the last one, I had it last Monday week. Um, it took me until this Monday to try and get over it. Like I was just uh, like exhaustion. Um, I was in a bit. I've been in a bit of pain recently. Um, so I'm on you know pain relief. Um, like the nausea. So you do have that now. I can I function. 
um, and I get up and get out and I'm still working from home and all that kind of stuff. But definitely, I feel like I feel really good today. And I know I'm on my up now because I've essentially got like about 10 days off. But the first first few days of it, yeah, is definitely hard to get over. And how do you keep your head together through all of that? Um, I worked really hard on my mental health because it like it really took a bash in, in 2019. I thought like 2017, yeah, but it's I work hard every day on it. Um, I speak to a friend of mine that's just amazing. She's n- not qualified or whatever, but I'd go and speak to her every week. Um, and we do mindfulness, and she introduced me to mindfulness and um positive thought. Um, I also started doing some sea swims. Um, that's how I got involved with Breast Cancer Ireland because I decided to do some sea swims for, um, you know, to raise some funds because I just feel that with research, um, you know, that's why I'm here. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, you have to try and keep the head up. And I do have days, bad days, you know, that are just hard or like that if there's a friend ill or, you know, you know, it's just, it, it hits me like when I heard about Sarah Harding's death, it's, hit me I don't know I'm not saying it's any harder than it hits anyone else but it really you know it can yeah. pull you down but definitely um mindfulness and like that getting out for a walk chatting with friends not talking about cancer all the time yeah um, yeah and just trying know. to be in the moment and, and seeing what what you're dealing with right here right now yeah. and not letting your mind run away with you so so yeah, important you have to have to, yeah you have to live in the moment actually it's, and that's that's one thing that I find very hard to do you know and it sounds so cliched, but, you know, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. And um, I think we all probably learned from COVID because we don't know what's coming tomorrow. You know, like, you know, people say, oh, you could be run over by a bus tomorrow. Um, you know, and COVID probably was the bus, you know. Um, yes, but yes. definitely trying to live in the moment and just live in the, you know, day by day and be grateful for every day that you're that I'm here, you know. And you're going to take part in the great pink run. Um, It's always a great yeah. event. There's always a great atmosphere we're we're still virtual for now but are you you looking forward to it because as you say without the funding there isn't the research and without the research there isn't the advancements which ultimately save lives and improve the quality of of those living with cancer oh absolutely i'm really excited i've never been involved in it before and there was things like that i kind of tend to kind of shy away from because it, it it really meant i had cancer and which sounds so silly but i'm actually um the girls in breast cancer ireland and like that the money going into the research and um, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm co- going to have my tribe with me. Um, some of my daughter's football team might join me and, you know, like that virtually, we're all going to, you know, do it um, together. So I'm really excited about it, really excited about it because I've never been involved in this. I'm I'm just, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there seems to be like and all my friends have, are ready to go and, yeah, really, really excited about the event and what it means for um, research and, you know, people like me and, people that unfortunately are going to be hit by it as well in the in the future. We'll get the pink wigs and the pink tutus <laughs> at the ready. A reminder that people can go to greatpinkrun.ie to find out more. Fiona Lambert, thank you so much for talking to me today and continued health and success to you. And thank you so, so much. Oh, thanks a million, Claire. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, Professor Francis Fanukin on the latest research into obesity and diabetes. Alive and kicking on News Talk.
Now, Professor Francis Finucane is a consultant endocrinologist at Galway University Hospitals and a professor in medicine at NUI Galway. He has worked extensively in the areas of obesity, childhood obesity and diabetes. He's currently establishing Ireland's first and only Masters of Science in Obesity and he's on the line now. Hello, Francis. How are you? Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me on. I'm always fascinated when I get to speak to either a professor or a doctor as to how they chose their specialist subject. What drew you to the endocrine system in the first place and from there to, to work in this area of obesity and diabetes? Yeah, well, uh, I suppose as a medical student uh, 23 years ago in Dublin, uh, the, the physiology of how hormones affect uh, different aspects of health in people was something that interested me from from an early stage and then I had an opportunity for some excellent endocrine training as a as a junior doctor in Dublin uh, in Beaumont the matter and then in James's hospital as well and uh, undertook some research at St James's where we investigated why it is that some people are worse affected by others when it comes to the complications of obesity and how hormones uh, influence that relationship, you know. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to receive funding to go to Cambridge for four years to do a postdoctoral fellowship there uh, with some of the best people in the world um, who were examining the influence between dietary factors, obesity, and then uh, in particular diabetes. In my in my case, because I'm a, a diabetes specialist um, as well as as well as caring for people with obesity. And then about 11 years ago, um, I was uh, asked to come back and lead the development of a service in Galway for patients with severe and complicated obesity um, and to provide various different types of care for those patients. Um, uh, and that involves uh, receiving uh, help or being part of a team with dietitians, nurses, surgeons, physicians like myself, uh, psychologists and others as well, physiotherapy, occupational therapy. So it's really a, a fascinating area that uh, involves lots of different members of the multidisciplinary team. And there's a lot that we can offer uh, people who are worst affected by the obesity crisis that we hear about all the time in Ireland and elsewhere. And it's so interesting that you mention such a, a multidisciplinary and different modalities involved in the treatment because the message that we get is actually quite simple. It gets boiled down to eat less, move more. But we will get into that in, in, a, in a moment. You said there about um, your original research or one of your original researches was looking at how people can be affected by others. What, what are those others? Are they other factors? Um, so, so yeah, so it's not as simple as, uh, individuals eating too much and then, you know, d developing, uh, problems related to eating too much like obesity or diabetes or say sleep apnea or cardiovascular disease or high cholesterol levels, you know, fatty liver disease. Uh, these are all, these are all the different complications that can occur. But what's interesting about those conditions is that some people develop uh, say diabetes, even with relatively low levels of overweight, or indeed some of the people who develop type 2 diabetes uh, have a normal body weight uh, or a normal body mass index for what that's worth. And other people can have a very, very markedly elevated body mass index in the 40s or the 50s or 60s, and yet they don't develop diabetes. So that relationship between 
excess fuel accumulation in your body or excess calorie accumulation in your body and, and, and how problems start to arise in the body uh, is not a straightforward one. And it's not something certainly that's, uh, that's reflected merely in someone's weight or someone's body mass index. It's much more complicated than that. And it's obviously much more complicated, the hormone structure. I think the impression yeah. we get at, at, at this level is that hormones are just something that can can control you and we can't necessarily control them. Is that true? The, well, um, to some extent, I, I suppose it's true to say that uh, we don't have as much discretion over our hormone levels as as we might like, you know, um, and uh, hormone secretion is under, you know, automatic control by process in our body that we we have uh, limited, uh, you know, uh, control over. That's for sure. Um, uh, but but what's interesting is that for some people, uh, hormone problems are worse than others. And, and I suppose the most relevant and important hormone from a diabetes point of view is insulin. And coincidentally, insulin was discovered 100 years ago uh, this year. So it's an important kind of uh, time for us in the field of endocrinology and diabetes, celebrating the discovery of insulin, which of course meant that people with type 1 diabetes uh, were able to uh, receive insulin replacement when they ran out of their own insulin and that led to them not having a sort of a, a guaranteed you know death sentence if with running out of insulin prior to 1921. So what's also interesting about insulin for type 2 diabetes patients is that it's uh, it's not so much that there isn't enough insulin there uh, it's that the insulin that's there doesn't work well enough and so there's a thing called insulin resistance and that's been something that's been very uh, closely studied over the last 30 years or so and that's very closely related to obesity so in general um, the higher someone's excess body weight is the more insulin resistant they become and the harder it is for insulin to work to do its job of getting fuel into the right cells and the analogy that i use when i speak to patients about insulin is that uh, insulin is like a key uh, that opens a lock and if you've got type 1 diabetes you don't have a key to open the lock and you need to replace that key with an injection of insulin but if you've got insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes then uh, the lock is stiff and uh, the key can't turn in the lock and um, in that situation you've got to do things to to I suppose make the lock easier to open uh, and that could be dietary modification exercise uh, sometimes medications can help with that uh, but insulin is just one of the hormones that's relevant for uh, people with uh, obesity and related disorders um, other hormones have also become uh, really important and interesting in the last 20 years or so and what's the latest research telling us about diabetes and obesity particularly in ireland well i think it, 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 the, the, the obesity and diabetes research around the world is 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 informing sort of the, the the approach to diabetes management in Ireland, and also it's important to acknowledge the 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 work that Irish scientists do in the diabetes field that that influences things internationally. So, for example, one of the things that has been uh, a real focus of international science that's been led from Ireland to some extent is the awareness now that 
uh, operations to treat severe and complicated obesity lead to very significant changes in the hormones that influence how hungry you are or how full you feel after meals. So Professor Carl LaRue and uh, Professor Helen Heenahan in UCD, for example, are doing seminal international work uh, that is changing uh, bariatric and metabolic care around the globe uh, to, to demonstrate that in some patients affected by obesity and diabetes, uh, when you uh, perform surgery in these patients and change the anatomy of their gut and where their stomach is relative to their small bowel, et cetera, that you actually change the, the chemical messengers and the hormones that are produced from the gut that influence eating and feeding behavior. And these have profound and immediate and long lasting effects on patients with severe and complicated obesity. So that's a good example of Irish research, which is changing clinical practice, not just in Ireland, but internationally as well. Uh, we've also uh, been fortunate in Ireland to participate in some of the drug trials of new medications for treating diabetes and obesity. And we've been able to demonstrate that these drugs are really safe, really effective for carefully selected patients with diabetes and obesity. And I suppose one of the challenges now, Claire, is to translate that new knowledge that Irish scientists in collaboration with international experts, that new knowledge has been generated. We now need to translate that into better patient care in Ireland. And I would say that one of the biggest challenges I see in a clinic on a Friday morning, uh, uh, like uh, it would be would, would, where we see our new patients, uh, would be that when we talk to them about drug treatment for obesity, often they have to fund this themselves because there's no mechanism for the government to pay for uh, this drug therapy where the problem is obesity as opposed to some other condition like diabetes. And that kind of speaks to a different issue, uh, one of stigma and bias against people who are affected by overweight and obesity. When you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, I'm talking to Professor Francis Finucane about obesity and his work as an endocrinologist and professor in medicine at NUI Galway. Um, and Francis, you've touched on it there. There's such emotion tied up. Obviously, you're looking at the, the physical aspects and I'm sure, of course, you build a relationship with your, your clients and your patients. But there's such emotion and such stigma involved in this topic, isn't there? How do you reconcile between the two? Well, I think the, the, the thing to do is absolutely recognize that it's a real and significant and common problem for uh, patients affected by uh, obesity. So, uh, uh, and th there's two types. There's, there's weight bias internalization or self-stigmatization, which is where people feel bad about themselves. Um, uh, and then there's also, the, you, you know, the, the stigma and bias that they uh, have to, um, uh, you know, put up with from others, uh, maybe in their lives, from colleagues, from family members, but also from society as a whole. And I think part of the problem is the culture that we have around um, obesity in Ireland is one of shaming and uh, criticism of people who are affected by overweight and obesity as being inadequately motivated or inadequately intelligent or just not diligent enough about their diet um, or their physical activity and that their, their, their problem is a self-induced one and a manifestation of those personal flaws. Um, whereas in actual fact, I think that when you um, understand the physiological basis for obesity, when you understand that 
it's 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 a problem related to um, genetic uh, influences and related to metabolic disturbances that ultimately, of course, do uh, manifest as as you know overconsumption of calories. There's no debating that. But the drivers of that overconsumption are profoundly complicated. And even the best people in the world don't fully understand uh, what's going on here. Um, but they're beginning to realize that it's a very complicated area indeed. And that criticizing people or making them feel bad about themselves does absolutely nothing to make their health better or to reduce the burden of the problem at a societal level. Um, so I, one of the things I'd say, Claire, is that when pe people come to a clinic such as ours, there's obviously other obesity clinics in the country as well. Um, when when they come to clinic, if they get a sense from you that you're not going to judge them about their their diet, or if they share with you that they struggle with overconsumption of chocolate or crisps or the unhealthy foods that we know lead to weight gain, um, once they get a sense that you're not going to judge them on on that and you're not going to throw it back in their face or tell them to eat less. Uh, then I think that opens up a, a really strong therapeutic relationship, um, and uh, and we, we can we can start a conversation then around, you know, what what effective strategies there are to help these people. Well, Francis, will you stay in the line? We're beginning to get to the heart of a subject that has just begun to, to fascinate me of late. Um, I'm talking to Professor Francis Vanukin, consultant, endocrinologist, and also professor in medicine about obesity and diabetes but we'll take a break and return after these welcome back to alive and kicking here on news talk with claire mckenna where i'm joined by professor francis Fanukin, consultant endocrinologist at galway university hospitals and a professor in medicine at nui galway and we were talking before the break there about the the stigma negative bias against weight gain and the assumptions that are made at government level. But you also touched on, on, on some of the the government policy level, which also seems to carry that, such as the lack of funding in the area for treatment for obesity. So is obesity viewed as a disease at, at, at that sort of a level or is it looked as, as, a, as a lifestyle choice? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And, and uh, you know, the, the Yes, is the short answer to it, uh, in the sense that the government has come around now to uh, viewing obesity as a disease, as a clinical problem uh, that's not uh, merely a manifestation of uh, inadequate personal responsibility. So that's true. I mean, there are philosophical, uh, you know, considerations that you could delve into about labeling obesity as a disease and and labeling a high body mass index as a disease when some of our best athletes have a body mass index in the obesity range, but they're perfectly healthy. So, so there is a complexity to that. But for all intents and purposes, when we're talking about people coming to, say, a bariatric clinic such as our own or uh, people who are affected by the consequences of overweight and obesity with, with those complications we mentioned earlier, then I think it's helpful on balance to view um, obesity and excess body weight as a disease in order that we can uh, take a clinical approach to it that involves uh, therapeutic strategies that need to undergo rigorous assessment in a randomized control trial say and um, so that we um, are using proven safe effective therapies 
um, uh, rather than you know uh, you know less well-defined interventions. So so from a clinical point of view, I think it's helpful to see obesity as a disease. And in fairness, the Irish government in 2005 produced a task force report that recognised obesity as such. And it's important to acknowledge the you know important ongoing struggle and 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 the work and the output that Donal O'Shea has has done over the last 20 years or so in Ireland in relation to getting that recognition. Um, and Donald now leads the national clinical program for obesity, and that's going. That's got a very ambitious uh, and hopefully well-resourced um, program that will deliver care at different levels of society to younger people, older people, people worst affected by obesity uh, at both a community level and then at a hospital level. So the fact that that national clinical program has been established is really positive. Uh, the fact that the government are seeing obesity as a disease is positive. And again, a bit like we spoke about earlier, it's important that that knowledge and expertise and advocacy that's gone on for 20 years now translates into you know, effective, meaningful uh, patient care that's delivered in a timely fashion in the right place. And <clears throat> again, just to emphasize, many of our patients are waiting several years to be seen. They're then waiting several years for surgery. They might not have access to expertise from a dietitian, for example, in, in Galway at the moment. That's a that's a real struggle for us. Um, and I think, you know, if we took obesity as seriously as we take other conditions like cancer, heart disease, etc., uh, we would have far greater resources and we'd have far more timely access to patient care. But I do think we're on that road now with uh, Donald's leadership of the National Clinical Programme. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a very important development. Um, and seeing obesity as a disease is absolutely uh, uh, critical, I think, yeah. You touched on earlier the simplistic message of eat less, move more being the wrong one. What else are we getting wrong in the messaging? Do we need to talk more about environmental factors that can lead to obesity and government policy in that region? Yeah, I think, of course, like, like the, the, the simple message of eat less and move more or, you know, just encapsulates what we know um, about the importance of a healthy diet and the importance of adequate physical activity. I mean, this is not new information. No one is seeking to uh, you know, change that message that, that that diet and exercise are critically important determinants of health, and we all have a responsibility to look after our our, our, our health and, and well-being, right? But um, I guess what I would say is that some people find that harder than others, you know. And when we talk about the genetic causes of obesity, and uh, you know, um, the, the 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 physiological basis and the changes in hormones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, really, all we're saying is that for some individuals it's really, really hard to control your food intake adequately. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's important that uh, we, we understand that when we're trying to figure out how to tackle the problem. So, if, you know, with, with that in mind, I think that when you look at the people with the most severe obesity um, who are attending, say, hospital-based services, uh, they're often um, the ones who are particularly badly affected by those underlying traits that make it harder for them to, to, to adhere to what we all know to be sort of reasonably healthy diet. Um, and for those people, the, 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 the therapeutic interventions are more important. So it's absolutely meaningless to say to somebody with a body mass index of 50 
who knows that you know uh, sugary snacks are bad for them but just cannot uh, you know change that dietary pattern themselves without some help it's meaningless to say look just eat less it's a bit like saying to somebody with a headache look just you should just be in less pain or it's a bit like saying to someone who's short of breath just breathe slower uh, it's a bit like saying to someone who's depressed just cheer up i mean clearly that is a completely inadequate approach to those clinical problems and it's the same when it comes to um, uh, obesity or eating too much food uh, saying to somebody listen just eat less is, is simply totally inadequate and um, doesn't take account of any of the underlying kind of factors driving that behavior they could be socioeconomic, they could be environmental, it could be to do with someone's personal background, as you say, if, and their ability to, to handle stress. And we don't seem to be meeting it with as much compassion and empathy as we could. Is there a place for that in science or do people just want facts alone? Well, I think there has to be a place for that in science because it's true, you know, and that's all scientists are seeking to determine what's the truth here, what what. Uh, you know, what, what is the best way forward? How are we going to deal with this problem best? And the students on our master's course, the very first lecture we, we do is um, coverage of a paper called Sick Individuals and Sick Populations, which was written by Jeffrey Rose back in 1985. And it was the seminal description of, you know, the approach to um, population uh, health and, and public health, right? So any, um, public health problem, be that COVID or cardiovascular disease, smoking, alcohol consumption or obesity, it requires a two-pronged approach, Claire. So on the one hand, you've got to take the people who are already worst affected by the problem and you've got to provide them with clinical care. But that does nothing to change the prevalence of the problem at a population level. And in order to address the, the, you know, the rising numbers of people affected by a problem, such as obesity, you've got to take environmental approach or a population-wide approach that affects everybody. So if we're concerned about the number of people being knocked down by cars, uh, of course we've got to provide trauma care to somebody who's, who's, who's knocked down and we fix their arm, we, you know, uh, and we make sure that they're well and bandaged up and they go home from hospital. But if we want to reduce the number of road traffic collisions, we're going to have to introduce environmental uh, uh, constraints, be that um, safer cars, uh, rules about uh, you know, stopping at traffic lights, reducing the speed limit and it's the same uh, when it comes to obesity uh, if we want to you know address the, the the environmental drivers of the obesity crisis then we're going to have to unfortunately make the the the, the unhealthy foods that, that people enjoy we're going to have to make them less accessible more expensive we're going to have to stop marketing those foods to children as well as adults uh, we're going to have to recognize that it's not an individual responsibility problem as much as a societal responsibility problem. And policymakers and government need to uh, grasp this nettle and deal with the environmental drivers of the obesity epidemic. And they've started, so we've got things like the sugar tax um, was, was unpopular politically, but it was an important development because it demonstrated for the first time that the government sees that you know society has a responsibility to deal with some of the really important drivers of the obesity crisis and putting people and, before profit as well for for a change well yeah and again not, not to bring political ideology into it but just from a public health ideology there's no question that the more expensive you make unhealthy food the less 
consumption of that healthy food will be and lower consumption of unhealthy food is what we need to tackle you know and and what we need to do in order to address the obesity crisis there's no doubt about that whatsoever and there's often this generation of controversy and noise around uh, you know discussions around obesity and what we need to do to address it but fundamentally rather than saying to individuals who are worst affected eat less and exercise more that's what we need to be doing at a societal level. But that's not going to happen if we're getting two-for-one offers as soon as we walk through the supermarket doors on donuts, or as long as it's really dangerous to take your kids to school, walking to school or cycling to school. We need to change the built environment to make it more conducive to physical activity. And we need to make the, um, you know, the retail environment much more conducive to a healthy diet. Um, I'm going to have to let you go. We've scratched the surface, but, you know, I've really loved the many of the points that you've brought up, particularly your driving analogy. Um, I'm sure there was plenty of pennies dropping around uh, through people listening. But I have been reading online of a connection at the moment between long COVID and diabetes or people who have had COVID then going on to develop diabetes because they have been they've had their pancreas attacked do we know anything further on that? Do you have any updated official research into that? Yeah, in fact, there was a there was a um, a Lancet review published on this just on Friday, um, which describes this um, phenomenon very well. So we knew from an early stage of COVID that people with that insulin resistance that I mentioned and diabetes had uh, had a higher risk of uh, getting more severe COVID or requiring ventilation in an intensive care unit or indeed dying from COVID. We knew that from good um, international studies right, right from the start. And what's very interesting and what has emerged is that in people who didn't have diabetes uh, when they developed COVID, that the COVID infection may in fact increase the risk of developing diabetes. Now that would make sense because we know that uh, some of the um, targets that the COVID virus attacks in the body, specifically the ACE2 receptor, uh, those receptors are, are expressed in the cells in the body that make insulin. They're called the beta cells in the pancreas. So those beta cells have these ACE2 receptors and the virus targets those receptors and that would account for the, um, the, the, the increased risk of diabetes in patients who've had COVID. And COVID may also increase that insulin resistance, the stiff lock that I mentioned earlier, and that would increase people's risk of type 2 diabetes. So it's a complex new area, but one that's very important that we understand so that we can you know, um, work out which patients are at highest risk from COVID. Well, absolutely fascinating uh, spending 25 minutes or so talking to you. Professor Francis Vanuken, consultant endocrinologist at Galway University Hospital and professor in medicine at NUI Galway. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cardoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week.